Hello, I'm your host, Daniel Schrader, and I'm here to take you through my personal camp collection. And today, we're starting at the beginning. The 2001 film, Josie and the Pussycats, was my camp awakening. Sure, I'd had previous camp experiences, but I wasn't awake to it until I made my dad take me to see Josie and the Pussycats in a theater. It was the first time I remember seeing my version of humor so sharply depicted on screen, a sort of wry, winking absurdity whose priority was itself, with a story that was always secondary to its satire, so the flashes of treacly story beats never got in the way of the joke it was playing. Josie and the Pussycats is a movie about a small-town three-woman rock band who rockets to stardom because a famous record label plucks them from obscurity and laces their tracks with subliminal messaging to sell shit and brainwash teens into conformity culture. I love this song! Oh, it's their best ever! If I don't buy it, everybody's gonna hate me! Totally! And I also want orange shoes. Yeah! Orange shoes are so much cooler than these stupid pink shoes! You guys! On its face, it's a ridiculous plot that maybe shouldn't work. And it wouldn't if it didn't lean so far into itself. It's a campy flick whose commitment to the bit makes it slide right into camp. I don't need to get too far into the camp versus campy distinction, but while most seem to think campy just means so bad it's good, I tend to interpret it as camp's PR team, an on-ramp for the uninitiated that gives people the opportunity to feel the rush of camp even before they know exactly what it is. Campy is a fay John the Baptist preaching that gay camp Jesus is coming. For Josie and the Pussycats, that starts with a plane ride. In the opening scene of the film, we meet Du Jour, the world's biggest boy band, boarding a plane to their next gig. Before they get on the plane, it seems like we're getting a standard parody film, as smart but expected jokes about this Backstreet Boys knockoff roll by. But after they board, we know what movie we're in. The walls, chairs, tables, every surface available is covered in product placement. Since it's a movie about product placement, that is a smart joke. But the combination of density and senselessness is what sends me over the camp edge. In particular, it's the bottles of ivory dish soap studding the walls. The scene is fun because of the zany antics of the idiotic bandmates, but it matters because of that dish soap. I know that really doesn't make much sense, but sometimes camp really isn't supposed to. Just go with it. Camp doesn't really care about plot, so I'm not going to waste your time running through every story beat, but we'll do a light recap with camp stops along the way. The members of this boy band find out that the record label Mega Records is putting subliminal messaging on their music tracks, and so their manager Wyatt, played by Alan Cumming, crashes the plane right outside Riverdale and sets out to find a new music group that he and his company can take advantage of. This is where we find Josie and the Pussycats, Rachel Lee Cook as Josie, Rosario Dawson as Valerie, and Tara Reed as Melody. They are really unsuccessful musicians in their hometown who just keep trying to make it work in any possible way and utterly fail until Wyatt happens upon them and without even hearing a note of their music says, Okay, I speak on behalf of everyone at the label when I say that we'd love for you to sign with Mega Records. And the way he says Mega Records, now that's camp. 
So he throws Josie and the Pussycats on a fresh new plane, along with their manager, Alexander Cabot, played by Paulo Costanzo, and his sister, Alexandra Cabot, played by Missy Pyle. And here's where we get another great line of camp dialogue, thanks to Missy. You know what? I still don't understand why you're here. I'm here because I was in the comic book. What? Nothing. There's also this guy, Alan M., tagging along, played by Gabriel Mann. He's not really worth mentioning that much because he's just part of Josie's storyline that certainly can't be camp because it's just a little too earnest and saccharine. Anyway, so they fly to the big city and within a week they get this great makeover, shoot to the top of the charts, and meet the head of the record label, Fiona, played by the scene-stealing, well, honestly, movie-stealing, Parker Posey who is the head of this subliminal messaging scheme working with the government to brainwash teens. And we get to see this whole complex command center where all these worker bees are coming up with the exact products and lingo and style that they are trying to sell to all the kids listening to their music. We decide everything from what clothes are in style to what slang is in vogue. Feather tank tops matching cans, kind of a buffy meets chicken run. Feathers are the new rhinestones. The new word for cool be Jerkin. As in, dude, that's Jerkin. Ooh, that's dirty. Jerkin is so camp. And then, as the movie plays out, Wyatt and Fiona start to brainwash Josie to turn her against the other two women in the group, sending Mel and Val to a fake TRL set where Carson Daly tries to murder them. The extra-textual detail that Carson Daly and Tara Reid were engaged in real life while filming this scene really makes it camp for me. So things keep getting out of control until Josie figures out what's going on, and it all culminates in this big stadium scene that is just too weird to spoil. Now, a few other camp highlights I do want to point out include things like the loose knots tied in Mel's long hair, Val reading an anger management book during lunch, a monkey in a full-body cast, one specific swoop of Josie's hair at the end of the makeover montage, and of course basically every single choice Parker Posey makes on screen. There are the outfits, like when she's wearing a neck piece made of what seems to be feather-tipped cat toys, the line deliveries, You should kiss my cellulite-free ass for all I've done for you. I made you a rock star. And just her overall presence. I think there are actually three women in the film who embody the camp experience. You've got the conscious campers of Missy Pyle and Parker Posey, both brilliant actresses who understand where they are, what they're doing, and just how often to wink into the camera lens. And then you've got Tara Reid, one of the worst actresses of her generation, whose utter obliviousness to the idea of acting brings her performance into the realm of unconscious camp savantism. It truly is a feat. Now, I've spent plenty of time singing the movie's camp praises, but there are so many pieces of non-camp strength that are essential for Josie and the Pussycats' overall transcendence, allowing it to be both a fantastic movie and still a wonderfully functional piece of camp. While the rest of the cast has campy on lock, Rosario Dawson and Rachel Lee Cook give amazingly grounded performances that keep the world feeling real, but never seem out of touch with the excessive affectation surrounding them. And then, there's the killer soundtrack. 
With a movie like this, it would have been easy to make a cheesy collection of parody tracks that fit the more absurdist flares of the film. I'm thinking something like an SNL-style movie. But instead, we get a tight, brilliant series of songs that stand on their own. This soundtrack was my most precious CD as a teen. I know every verse of every song by heart. The scratched up purple disc is still laying around my apartment somewhere as a piece of camp nostalgia. And yes, I did buy the vinyl record of the album, even though I don't have a record player. That purchase might have been camp. The album is so good because it turns out it was made by some really talented musicians, with people like Adam Duritz of Counting Crows, Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne, and Kat Hanley of Letters to Cleo writing the music, and Hanley's voice being used as the voice for Josie, with the trio of actresses just providing backup vocals. The music is so well made, and its extremely sturdy foundation allowed the rest of the movie to have fun with itself. We can let ourselves go on the camp thrill ride because the music demonstrates the extreme care that was taken with the entire film. Every dumb bit of dialogue and throwaway gag was treated with just as much seriousness as the genuinely good music, and paved the way for its own camp potential. Camp is caring about the most insignificant things and making them matter just as much, if not more, than the most important. As I work on this project and spend my days dreaming about camp, I am more and more drawn to the idea of camp as a gay approach to humor. Comedy being such an amorphous and difficult thing to articulate, of course the gays would add the challenge of particularity. Not everything funny is camp, but camp is inherently funny. It's the seriousness escape hatch, a roundabout way of experience that provides its own avenue of clarity. By sidestepping the direct approach, we can look past a work surface, into the humming machine below, and understand what really matters. Now, what I've provided is certainly not a comprehensive list. I could go on and on about the little bits of camp fun, like the hand gesture Parker Posey gives when she says the word gossip, or the way she and Alan Cumming compete with their villainous laughs. But if any of these things I mentioned gave you an extra little shock, then you're on your way to a camp understanding. If not, we can always try again next time. And I guess that's it for this week. My lesson in the seriously unserious. I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we get into something much less dense and much less aware. Thanks so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter at RoughShrade or send me an email at purecamppod at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review if you'd like. And remember, all that matters are the things that simply don't matter at all.